Hello, Microbi Gal Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Micro Moment. I'm Tess. And I'm John. And can you believe, John, that January's already over? What? It's already at the end of the month. I feel like I'm still trying to get back into the groove of things. Yeah, me too. But a lot has happened this last month. But most of that we aren't going to talk about. That's right, because it's time for the bomb. That's right, our monthly segment of sharing with you all the best of microbiology. The top microbial news in marine microbiology, agriculture, medical, extremophiles, and so much more. So are you ready, John? Oh, I'm ready, Tess. But first, we got some business. Right. First, we'd like to hear from you. What are we doing that you love? Or what are we doing that you don't love so much? We are here for you. So please, please, please give us some feedback. If you go to the show notes, you can find a link to our listener survey. Or you can go to microbigals.com slash survey. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S dot com slash S-U-R-V-E-Y. Spelling is a challenge. You ready for elementary school now? Oh, I think so. All right, guys and gals. It would really help us cater our topics and our whole show to what you want to hear. So please take the five to 10 minutes to fill out and let us know how we are doing. It's an anonymous Google form. It will take like 10 minutes of your time, maybe even less. It's only 10 questions. You probably could have already filled it out in the time that we've been talking about it. Okay, now, we're, are we ready to start? Not quite, John. We got to tell everyone what we are drinking today, and I'm so excited about this one. Oh, right. Today we have the Pseudomonas Snowflake Martini. For those of you that don't follow our blog, we recently published an article called Walking in a Winter Wonderland of Microbes. It's all about how the microbe Pseudomonas and its protein INAZ actually helps nucleate ice. Yeah, so the next time you stick your tongue out to catch one of those unique little snowflakes, remember there could be a hidden surprise microbe held within. But don't worry, Pseudomonas syringae is harmless to you. It's just trying to find a new plant to wreak havoc upon. If you'd like to drink along with our Pseudomonas snowflake martini, it is two shots gin, half shot of blue caraco, two shots pineapple juice, and two tablespoons of cream of coconut. And to give it a little extra snowflake flavor, go ahead and dip your martini glass into some honey and then coat it with some coconut flakes. So cheers, everyone. Tess, you want to start? Sure. Let's get started. So our first article is about extremophiles and space scrubs. Oh, this one is mostly about extremophiles. So this is the article by Amber Dance. It is entitled, Studying Life at the Extremes. Researchers have invented methods to study microbes that thrive in the world's most inhospitable environments. I love that word, inhospitable. It is a great word, isn't it? So this article has a really gnarly picture as the cover or wicked intense picture, maybe I should say. It's like an astronaut ziplining over a flaming gas crater in Turkmenistan, aka the door to hell. Yeah, talk about an adrenaline rush. Anyways, so this article is all about extremophiles, the microbes that live in the most extreme environments. Sometimes they are the only living things in these environments. Think microbes that live near boiling heat, near freezing cold, high salt, acids, 
even radioactivity. Scientists believe there is much to learn about these extremophiles, but how can we study them when their environments are too harsh for the researchers and they won't survive the relatively easy life in a lab? The University of Vermont microbiologists gathered scientists from around the world in an ongoing initiative called Extreme Microbiome Project. Stott Higgy assembled a group in 2014 with hopes of discovering how these microbes could survive the harshest environments and use this knowledge to create new antibiotics. And Scott Tiggy, if you're looking for a postdoc, I'm your gal. I definitely want to dress up as an astronaut and go ziplining over a flaming gas crater in Turkmenistan. Anyways, there are a lot of challenges in studying extremophiles, though. What makes them able to survive also makes them difficult to study. So the teams have had to come up with new research methods in order to crack their code. The team developed a six-enzyme cocktail, very different from the cocktail we're drinking tonight, but a cocktail nonetheless to break down cell services, which is now commercially available called metapoliazyme. Other methods include using electricity to poke holes in cell walls to study and manipulate genes of microbes to help discover new ways to make antibiotics more effective. Another innovation is heated microscope stages to view Sophilobus acidicaldaris cell divisions. Since they are thermophilic and acidophilic, which means they like both extreme heat and very low pHs, and will not grow in cool environments. So you need a heated microscope just to look at them divide? That's what they're doing. Seems to be working. Yeah, the study of extremophiles is just so fascinating. There's so many different little obstacles you have to go through just to study them. But what their genes are doing and how they're doing could definitely help us in so many ways. I agree. That kind of leads into our next topic. So what's our next topic, John? Well, this is in the topic of pathogen profiles in medical microbiology. This is from a, a Nova article. After conquering space, water bears could save global vaccine and blood supply. So as you know, we've talked about tardigrades before. Tardigrades are known for their ability to survive many extreme environments and conditions due to their ability to enter a state of hibernation. Hibernation like regular bears? Uh, no, actually. <laughs> so when do they hibernate? Usually when they get into situations of extreme stress, like dehydration or radiation or stuff like that. Oh, so like fungal spores. Yeah. So most organisms produce a special sugar to help protect extreme environments, which tardigrades lack. But... They have a protein that is produced when they don't have water. It's called cytosolic abundant heat soluble proteins. Or C-A-H-S. Right. This protein creates a gel that protects other proteins from unfolding and combining with each other, which could lead to cell death. A team led by Dr. Boothby is partnering with a biotech company to use these proteins in pharmaceuticals. What kind of pharmaceuticals? Well, many pharmaceuticals like vaccines need to be cold. Oh yeah, like our COVID-19 needing minus 70. Exactly. And they need to be stored in these really cold conditions. But this makes accessibility to developing countries very difficult. The team has already tested the protein and found it protects the proteins within pharmaceuticals about 10 times more efficiently than current methods. Well, see, I told you what's within extremophiles can be helpful to us. I know. There it is, an actual application of extremophile genes. And Boothby hopes to be able to apply this to even blood transfusions so that they can be used on situations like the battlefield. 
A battlefield? Yeah. You're on the battlefield. Of, you're losing a lot of blood. And a medic just comes in and uh, starts giving you a blood transfusion. Wow. Rehydrating it with some water. But I have to say this all with kind of an asterisk because I looked at today and that was written in 2019. And I looked for updates, but there really hasn't been many updates. Boothby did publish a, a paper in November 2020. That wasn't that long ago. No, but apparently there are three families of abundant heat-soluble proteins, one for cytoplasm, secreted, and mitochondria. And together they're called tardigrade disordered proteins, which are unique to tardigrades. Or so they think now. So far, yeah. So much of the extremophiles we just don't know about. I know. And the paper doesn't really make definitive answers, but it says it calls for more research of these proteins due to a lack of understanding of how they function. However, they do play a role in protecting the cells of the tardigrade when they are stressed. And I could not also find any news on the company that they're partnering with their website. Well, it does sound exciting and should be something to look at in the future. Yeah, I'm really going to look closely at this one because it sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So let's talk food and agriculture microbiology now. Ooh. And I will admit, I got a little sidetracked when I was looking into this one. And although this article has stuff to do with food and agriculture, it's ultimately a gut microbiome study. But your gut microbiome's influenced by the food you eat, and the food comes from agriculture, so close enough. I'll call it an agricultural paper. Yeah. So this is a paper. It was published in Nature, I believe. So obviously it's pretty fabulous because you don't get in nature unless you fabulous and francesco and senecar at all super fabulous with their nature paper published microbiome connections with host metabolism and habitual diet from 1098 deeply phenotyped individuals yeah i sort of read research papers like picture books if they don't have good pictures i don't read them and this one had fabulous graphs like they were amazing and so captivating that I just had to include it in this month's Da Bomb. Very colorful. So colorful, very detailed. There's a lot going on. It's just really amazing. I definitely suggest go check it out. Anyways, but I'll give you a little brief overview of what it is so you can go find it if you want to later on. So scientists have long known the microbiome and diet contributes to a number of chronic conditions, but the complexities of our lives and food choices make it difficult to connect specific microbes or foods to diseases. So Francesco Essenacar and his colleagues ran a highly controlled study looking at 1,203 microbiomes from over 1,000 individuals. That is a big cohort. Yeah, they gathered additional data as well, including clinical data, diet, and serum metabolomics, personal data, and blood to measure continuous glucose monitoring. Wow, they're very thorough with the study, huh? Yeah, which allowed them to really link the microbiome shifts to a number of different phenotypes that they're seeing in their cohort. So essentially, they tried to look at the interaction between diet, the microbiome, the cardiometabolism, which includes blood pressure and triglyceride levels, total cholesterol, HDLC and LDLC, fasting glucose, and glycosylated hemoglobin. <laughs> That's a hard word. 
I just wanted to read a quote from this paper because I did realize when I was reading this paper, although, I mean, the pictures were beautiful, but this paper is highly complicated to read. And this is just a little snippet of how complicated scientists sometimes like to write their papers. While some microbes, such as Prevotella corpori and Blastocytus species, were indicators of favorable postoperandal glucose metabolism, overall microbiome composition was predictive for a large panel of cardiometabolic blood markers, including fasting and postperennial glycemic, lipemic, and inflammatory indices. Uh, Can you translate that for us, John? Nope. I need to read that a couple times over. Yeah, I could barely even say it. And I have a PhD. This is kind of a hard paper to read. The jargon in this paper is real tough. But I'll do my best to explain what they found. But really, scientists, we don't need to talk like this. We can talk like normal people. Yeah. I think it's important. But the paper's great. Tone down the language a little bit. At any rate, unsurprisingly, they did find that Streptococcus, Thermophilus, and Bifidiobacterium animalis were associated with diets with high consumption of full-fat yogurt, as these are microbes that are found in full-fat yogurt. Yeah, the uh, Streptothermophilus is one of the starters for most yogurts out there. Exactly. And then one thing that they did find that I thought was really interesting as someone who drinks a lot of coffee and tea is they found this bacteria, Lacinobacter asaccharolyticus, had the strongest association with food. Can you guess what food it was highly associated with since I just said it? I'm going to say coffee. Yup. So this Lacinobacter acidocolyticus is known as a butyrate-producing microbe. And John, do you know what butyrate does? I know it's important for gut health and uh, providing energy to cells. Yeah, and it can also increase your epithelial barrier and decrease inflammation. That all sounds pretty good, huh? Yeah. Yeah. They have linked lower levels of butyrate-producing microbes to diseases like IBD. So having this microbe may be beneficial. But they said that this was kind of a newly discovered microbe. It's not really known if it's kind of a good or bad microbe, as they say. But as I say, there are no good or bad microbes. Yeah, I've never heard of this microbe before. They said it was pretty newly identified. And the other thing as they saw is a lot of the microbes that they did see associated with food are unknown at this time. They're not able to be cultured, and they currently don't have names. You know, I've always wanted to be on a team that was able to culture bacteria so I could name it. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. Would you name it after me? Of course. You better. (laughs) So one microbe group that kept coming up in the paper associated with bad things was Clostridium. Really? Yeah, it was uh, associated with unhealthy diets. Now, this is not Clostridium difficile, the causative Asian of C. diff. There was like five or six of them that they named were associated with unhealthy diets. The unhealthy diets are sort of like juices or fatty meats is what they were kind of saying were unhealthy. So anything that's super processed or high in sugars. And so they were also able to link this unhealthy diet and Clostridium with obesity surprise 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 unhealthy diets lead to obesity so this was a huge sample size with tons of data and like i said beautiful figures and had much better data tracking than previous research so researchers were able to draw a lot of these correlations with a lot more confidence than previously however 
The food was not weighed, so exact measurements can't be drawn. And it can be really hard when you're working with humans and telling them like, hey, I want you to eat 60 grams of this and do that consistently for like a whole month. But this is likely going to be the next step in really understanding microbiome and how diet plays a role in it, as we really have to be able to control people's meal plans Similarly, like when we do mouse studies at microbiome, you feed mice an exact amount and you know exactly the nutrients in the meals that you feed them. And that is a huge gap between the mice studies and the human studies. But I do think we are moving in that direction. Although I would be totally fine if someone gave me exactly what to eat. Because I don't have to think about it. That's so much stress. I think I would be down for that study. Yeah, that'd be good. I might be a little irritated at the end. Looking at that ice cream, I want it. Yes, I think that's all that I got from that study. Do you want to talk about biotech? Sure. So I read an article called Poultry Probiotic Ingredients Market Worth Over $120 Million by 2026, says GMI, which is Global Marketing Insights. So it really wasn't this big article, but it's something I thought is nice to talk about. Mainly because people are looking for safer and more natural growth promoters in their food. There's also an increasing awareness by farmers to decrease the use of antibiotics in animal feed. Well, that's good. Yeah. I know some countries, I can't remember, I think it may have been the Netherlands that like outlawed using antibiotics for their animal feed. I believe it's the Netherlands. Yeah. Northern Europe for sure. They're on top of that stuff. And they saw antibiotics resistance drop like within the first couple years of stopping and reducing it. I believe that as well. And so this has caused speculation that probiotics for poultry will increase to 120 million sales by 2026. Overall, that isn't a whole lot of money, but it's a start. Seems like a lot of money to me. And this is in hopes that they will improve resistance to disease and maintain a healthy microbiome. And we love a healthy microbiome. We do. They say that streptococcus probiotics play a role in promoting growth. Streptococcus? Yeah. Oh, I guess like streptococcus thermophilus. Yeah, but I think they're more specific to like birds. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just thinking like streptococcus strept is strep throat is always the first thing that comes to my mind. And then I have to think about it and be like, oh, yeah, there are probiotic forms of streptococcus. It's both pathogen, commensal, and probiotic, which is why microbes are neither good nor bad. It's all situational. Exactly. There's also lactobacillus that help maintain gut health and nutrient absorption in turkeys. And this could help, like I said, in curbing the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria if this takes over from using antibiotics in animal feed. It kind of just sounds like they're going to feed the chickens lots of yogurt. So what do you have for us for environmental marine microbiology? Well, I have a little article by Abby Olena called The Oceanic Bacteria Trap Vast Amounts of Light Without Chlorophyll. That's right, without chlorophyll. What? First, how are you doing on your martini? I just finished it. Did you eat any pseudomonas? Mm, I don't know, but it's possible. So this article by Abby Olena called The Oceanic Bacteria Trap Vast Amounts of Light Without Chlorophyll. So how do they do it then? So scientists used to think that the majority of solar energy in the ocean was captured by microorganisms with chlorophyll. In recent studies now show that it could actually also be attributed by bacteria with proteorhodopsins, which are proteins that capture light with a pigment called retinol. 
all of this light getting captured by the sun is then converted into energy for the ocean's inhabitants. By collecting samples of seawater and calculating the number of proteoridopsins and the amount of trapped light, it is thought that the microbes with proteoridopsins are more prevalent in areas than the chlorophyll using photosynthesis to convert light into energy, providing this valuable service to nutrient-poor waters. With climate change warming the oceans, the global carbon cycle is unclear, but the depletion of nutrients may mean that proteoridopsins may become the new dominant light to energy means. Oh, are they going to kick out cyanobacteria? I mean, I don't think they're doing any more than what they've been doing before. I just think now we have a fuller picture to the full story. Hmm, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Science, always changing what we thought we knew. Well, my micro friends, that's it for this month's The Bomb. Thank you for listening. And remember, please take the survey. You can find it in the link in the show notes or on our website, microbegales.com slash survey. We really, really, really do appreciate your continued support. What was your favorite microbe story you came across so far in 2021? You can let us know by sending us an email to microbegales at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter, Reddit, or Facebook with the username microbegales. If you learned something new, we'd love for you to share it with a friend. Or 10. We, we hope, hope you enjoy, enjoy listening, listening. And we, we hope you and your mighty microbes, microbes are making marvelous microbe moments right now. And, and always. Okay. Bye. You got some snowflake on your beard.